I'm going to do two things in this session this morning. One of them is finish Romans 8 and just speak on the last part of the chapter. It's an incredible, incredible chapter. And <laughs> I hope you understand that we have only introduced the chapter in this conference. Literally and truly, we can spend the next 12 months meeting every week and stay in Romans 8. And when we're done with those 12 months, we still would not have exhausted it. We wouldn't have come close to exhausting it. And that is an honest, true statement. So please do not feel that because we spent four sessions on Romans 8 that we really covered it. (laughs) You know, I wouldn't even say we introduced it. We gave a preface to it, really, is what we did. In a book, you have the introduction. Well, before the introduction is the preface. <laughs> That's what Honestly, it's so rich. The brothers and sisters who gather in Toledo literally could spend the next six months doing nothing but coming together and having meetings around Romans 8. And you will not have exhausted it. And there are many ways to meet around Romans 8. You know, you can take a certain sections of the letter and for two weeks hear the Lord speak through it in different ways. One week, let's hear the Father speak through Romans 8. Another week, let's hear the Lord Jesus Christ speak through Romans 8. Another week, let's hear the Bride of Christ, of which we're part, speak to the Lord Jesus through Romans 8. Let's write it as a love poem to Jesus Christ from us. I've seen churches do that. Take a whole passage of Ephesians 1, for example. Let's rewrite it as a poem of love to Jesus Christ. You can write songs from Romans 8. You can do skits around Romans 8. You could give teachings, exhortations out of Romans 8. You can do what I did last night, which I just took a portion of it, where you heard the Father speaking to one of His children through Romans 8. You can do a lot. And see, these things that I'm talking to you about reflect creativity in the church of Jesus Christ to reveal the Lord. And we never, ever, ever see any of this done in the institutional church. It's a one-string violin. The same string is being played every week. What is that string? You sing some songs followed by a worship team. You sit down and you listen to the pastor give a sermon and that's the only string that's played. But in organic church life, it's limitless. You can have all sorts of different meetings, all of which are rich and express Christ through the ever-member functioning of His body. Now, if that doesn't appeal to you, I cannot help you. If that doesn't put something in your heart that says, wow, that sounds really cool, then you're overshooting the goal, folks. And uh, I would say to you, then, then maybe the institutional church is a good place for you. For me personally, compared to what I've just said and described and what I've experienced, it is drop-dead boring. Forgive me for my sins, but I, I, I am bored with institutional church services. I can't stand them. I, I just can't, I can't handle it. You know, I am... It's boring. And especially when you put that over against a meeting that the saints have prepared for and put together and they're all sharing the Lord from their experience and from what they see of him like I'm talking about man it doesn't compare I don't see how you can compare that but then again maybe that's just me
Turn to Romans 8. I want to just quickly review the first session where we opened up the chapter. It's one of the great chapters in the New Testament. I basically tried to drive home four points in our first session, and that is number one, Jesus Christ is no longer walking around on the earth in a physical body. He died, He rose again, and then, to use Paul's words, He became a life-giving spirit. And He, Jesus Christ, the same Jesus that walked around the earth, came to dwell inside of you. He penetrated your rib cage, And now Christ dwells in you by the Spirit and also God the Father who Jesus Christ is in, dwells in you. And we saw this in Romans 8. Now this is not Oprah Winfrey, New Age mystical, God is in all of us. That's not it. When you called on His name and you bowed your knee to Jesus, the Spirit of a living God came in you and Christ came in you and God the Father came in you. Why? Just so you can kind of feel good and you can say God lives in me? No, so that you can live by His life instead of your own. Now, someone pointed out to me, and I don't know if it's true or not, but I'll take their word for it, that when I gave the illustration of God creating human beings with their spirit being in the ascendancy, the soul following, and then the body being in third place, that when Adam took of the forbidden tree with Eve, not only did sin come into them, and I explained that sin is a life form, but the Spirit died. Well, when you came to Christ and you believed on Him and you trusted in Him and you surrendered to Him, the Spirit of the living God came in you and resurrected your dead spirit. And that's where the Holy Spirit is now. He is in your human spirit, alive. And He seeks to live His life through you. I made the statement, you cannot live the Christian life. This is the point of Romans 7. You, you, human being, cannot live the Christian life. I, Frank Verola, cannot live the Christian life. Okay? I am a human being. I'm the wrong species. I cannot do good. Good is a life form. I have the knowledge of good because my forefather ate the wrong tree. And he gave me the knowledge of good and evil. And most Christians live their life by the knowledge of good and evil. Is this right? Is this wrong? Is this good? Is this bad? That's the wrong tree. If you try to live that way, you're going to find that you have something else in you going on that's going to fight against that, and you're going to be in the situation of Romans 7. I can't live the Christian life. I can't be perfect. Man, I did good for two days, and then gosh, gosh golly, this thing, sin, is in me. It keeps resurrecting. It keeps pulling me back. It keeps causing me to fall. No, you can't live the Christian life. Jesus Christ can, because He is the Christian life, and He is good. And here's the good news. He lives in you. And what is the church? What is an organic church? What is the church in God's mind? It's a group of people who have enthroned Jesus as Lord and are learning to live by His indwelling life together. They're learning how to live what Paul said, It is not I, but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 2.20. That's what they're doing. And they're pursuing the Lord. And they're getting to know the Lord. My point here is that you can know the Lord. You can know Him deeply. And it takes a couple things. One is, it takes being in Christian community with a group of believers that are pursuing the Lord and a little bit of practical help. Paul said in Romans 8, set your mind on the Spirit. And I translated that into, turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord. 
when Milt and I work with a group of Christians and they're starting to meet under Christ's headship, mainly what we're doing is teaching them how to turn to the Lord. And one of the, uh, the exercises I gave you is to do it in the morning. As soon as you wake up, turn everything in you to Jesus Christ. I would suggest to you to try to do that the rest of the days of your life. You will forget many times, but that's a good place to begin. We gave you some exercises on how to take the Scripture and hear the Lord through the Scripture. That is touching His life. That is setting your mind on the Lord. And there are many, 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 many other things that we can give to you practically, but we got to start somewhere, and that's where we're starting this weekend. We're just giving you a little taste, a little bit of an introduction. There's much more. Okay, now, let's, let's turn to Romans 8, verse 28. I'm going to introduce this part of the chapter by reminding you that Romans 8 is like the opening up of a flower. And verse 1, he gives the main point, and that is, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he begins to unravel this flower, and we begin to watch it move from uh, one stage into full bloom. And by the very end of the letter, which we will see, we're in full bloom. We see the beautiful flower. We can smell its fragrance. We can see all of its colors. And Paul has basically come to a crescendo in making this point. Now, why is this important? I understand that there are people in the institutional church that will say, it's the grace of God and you're under grace and, and all that. I understand that. I understand. I mean, I, I, I spent enough time in institutional Christianity where I heard people say, you're not condemned. Jesus has forgiven you all your sins. But I met very few Christians that were able to take that into their heart and believe it and walk in it. In fact, I speak in conferences all over the country and in other parts of the world, and Milt does too. And most of the people that come to their conferences have been Christians in the institutional church for many years. And they've heard, I mean, they've read Romans 8. There's no condemnation. They've heard preachers say you're under grace. Why is it then that in many of them they're weeping and they're saying, I never really saw this and I never really believed it. Today I'm set free. Because it hasn't connected. And I'll tell you one of the reasons why. It's because most of the people who preach that message end up contradicting it somewhere else in their talk. Let me tell you what the typical gospel message sounds like in the typical evangelical church. It sounds like this. You're a sinner. Okay, uh, we've got some people in the audience that have never come to the Lord. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. He accepts you as you are. He loves you. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. You can never be good enough for God. Everything that you've ever done doesn't count, but it doesn't matter because the grace of God is for you. He loves you. He accepts you unconditionally. He's out of His head in love with you. Jesus has already died for your sins. All you have to do to experience it is just say yes. Just, just take Him in your heart. Just believe it. It's grace, grace, grace. You can never work enough to please God. You can never work enough to please God. You can't please God by your works. Come to the Lord. Just believe on Him. Receive His grace. It's a free gift. Right? Okay. Okay, I will. Next Sunday morning. Now that you're saved, let me tell you how to make God happy. If you don't read your Bible every day, He's not going to be happy with you. 
You're not doing enough, brother. How many people have you witnessed to this week? None. You're a carnal Christian. God's not happy. Uh, are you really walking after the Spirit? Or are you walking after the flesh? If you're walking after the flesh, you'll die. God's going to judge you. He's not happy. Y'all get off your butt. You're not doing enough. It's a bait and switch gospel. And so, yeah, you can hear, oh, yeah, yeah, I know God loves me. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, I'm not under condemnation. You really don't believe it. Because all the sermons you hear basically are built on the supposition that you can live the Christian life. You can please God. You, you can do it. And you're not doing enough and God's not happy with you. Brothers and sisters, here's the truth. You are saved by grace. And you are not preserved by works. You are saved by grace. You are preserved by grace. You begin in grace. You end in grace. It is all grace. If the Christian life will be lived, he's got to do it. I can't. If it's going to get lived in Frank Viola, Lord, it's going to be you who does it because I can't do it. And that's Romans 7. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this dead carcass that keeps on failing I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Now there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. That doesn't change. doesn't change. True organic church life begins in total freedom and liberty. Free from the law. You died to the law. If any expression of God's law is fulfilled in your life, it's not you who's doing it. It's because you have an indwelling Lord. And in those moments where you're letting Him live through you, He's fulfilling the law, not you. In fact, He already fulfilled all of it on your behalf. Now, somebody says, well, boy, this message is going to make us all go out and sin big. You know, hey, let's go to some parties tonight because we're under grace and we're not going to be condemned and Jesus took care of it. And uh, now, if that's you, you misunderstand. We're free, period. But if you really understand this and take it into your heart, it will cause you to love Him. And you'll find out what rebellion does to you. If the Spirit of God is in you and you try to live according to your flesh, you will be at war in yourself. And Jesus Christ is going to be there nudging and speaking. You can't be at peace. And then you'll come to the point where you say, I surrender. I surrender. I can't do it. But most of the Lord's people aren't like that. That's the minority who kind of take grace and say they run with it. Most of the Lord's people are living under legalism, whether they may realize it or not. They're trying to be good Christians. And uh, quite frankly, many of them are burning out, and many of them live in condemnation. This is where true church life begins, in a state of freedom. I am free in Christ. He has set me free. He has set me free from the law. He has set me free from the 613 commandments and obligation to do them. He set me free from religious duty, religious obligation, duty-based uh, service. He's, he set me free from the world system. He set me free from the old creation. He set me free from Satan's power. He set me free from the power of sin. I am totally free. The only thing I'm not free from is Jesus Christ. He's my life. Yeah. <clears throat> We're free from everything except for Him. That's where we begin. Why is this important? Because if you begin to meet this way, there will be those in your group. There will be those who will come and visit that have a legal mind and will not understand your freedom and will try to take it away. we got to start doing this. We have to start doing that. We better start doing this. And that's where you have to say, only Jesus Christ. We're only here for Him. To know Him, to pursue Him. 
He lives the Christian life. We're getting to know how to live by His life. We're tired of trying and doing. We want Him. And that's when things begin to happen. You begin to know this glorious Lord and you begin to discover Him together. And now He begins to live. And now the church begins to do things, but it's not you doing it. It's Him doing it through you. And there's a big difference. Everything that's done is done in a state of relaxed, peaceful atmosphere. And it's Him, not you. You've entered into the rest of God. Hebrews 4 says, He that has entered into His rest has ceased from His labors. So, this is why this is so important. This is why Romans 8 is so important. Because we need to take this into our hearts and believe it. Believe it. And if we believe it, if we really believe that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that I cannot be condemned. The only way that I can be condemned is if God the Son can be condemned. Because I'm in Him. I really am in Him. That's not positional truth. That's true. And somebody's going to misunderstand this. I know it. If you don't read your Bible for the next year, if you don't tell anybody about Jesus Christ for the next year, if you don't have prayer time for the next year, if you don't go to church for the next year, Jesus Christ, God the Father, will love you the same way, no differently than those times where you read the Bible and try to witness and go to church and be a good Christian and tithe. It doesn't change. It doesn't change. Now, I, I would suggest to you that out of all those things, probably one of the things that would actually be good for you is, I'm not going to say what it is, but uh, spiritually. <laughs> I'll tell you this, reading the Bible won't do much good if you simply read it for knowledge and do not know how to encounter Him through it. Feed on His life through it. And I, and I hope that you realize we gave you a couple of handles on how to do that. Hope you'll build them into your life. Okay. Here's another reason why you want to meet together. You're going to forget this. You will forget this weekend. You will forget everything you heard. And I'll tell you how to forget it. You want to know how to forget it? Okay, here's how to forget it. We'll give you the ingredients for forgetting everything you heard. That you're not under condemnation. That you're free from it. The overwhelming love of God never changes. It's not based on your works. Never has been, never will be. When you leave here, turn on the Christian radio and listen to a preacher. Then turn the TV on and listen to another preacher. And then go to church on Sunday morning. And you will find out all the things that you need to do that you're not doing. And you will go back into duty-based, performance-based, i got to do better, i got to work on this, i got to be better at that. I'm telling you the truth. I'm being totally honest with you. I mean, <laughs> every sermon, most, most every sermon is built on the supposition that you are not doing enough and you can do more and you can. You as a human being can live the Christian life. And I say, that's not New Testament. Only Jesus Christ can live it. And thank God He's given us His life. And He can live it. Okay, now, let me give you a little bit of a background to this. And we're going to finish up with Romans 8. And then I'm going to get real practical with all of you. The recipients of this letter 
that you're reading now, in seven years' time from the time that they got this letter, it was written around 57, 58 AD, in seven years most of the saints in the church in Rome will be annihilated by Nero, the emperor of Rome. Virtually everyone in the church will be dead. Some of them will be dipped in oil, tied by the feet, and hung in Nero's garden. He will then mount a chariot. He will ride by the garden with a torch, and he will light the bodies of the Christians to light up his garden. That is history. It happened. Nero blamed the Christians in Rome on the fire that burned in 64 AD. Many historians believe Nero himself started that fire. And he decimated the Christians. These same people who will hear these words will not reach their 45th birthday, many of them. Now that's a little context, historical context. And what I find amazing about that is what Paul says. We don't know what awaits us. We had the event in 2001 here that rocked the country and, and changed the country. You know, We, we don't know what's going to happen in the next few years. We don't know what's going to happen to us as individuals. I mean, you know, we live in a dangerous world. Whether you fly planes or automobiles or walk across the street, you know, you can be in your home <laughs> with your doors locked. It's And I just want you to keep this in mind about what Paul's going to say. Let's look at verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now this is His eternal purpose, and uh, we don't have time to unravel it, but God's eternal purpose reaches back before creation, and it extends to eternity future. Here it is in a nutshell. You can slice it in many different ways. It's a multi-splendored thing, but it comes down to four things. One, God the Father wants a house for Himself. Somewhere to live, somewhere where he can be comfortable, a place to lay his head. What is an organic church? It's a group of Christians that say, Lord, we don't want you just to visit us. You hear a lot about visitations from God. Oh, we want God to visit. Or God visited us last week. God is not interested in visiting. He wants to <laughs> dwell. <laughs> he wants a place he calls his own. When you visit a place, it's not your own. I'm not interested in having a visitation. I want a place where my Lord can lay His head. And God the Father wants a house. That's for Him, not for you. And this is a group of Christians that says, Lord, you've always wanted a home. Here it is. In your control. In control. We give you the control of this house. A place where you can find rest. A place where you can be ministered to. They ministered unto the Lord. It says in Acts chapter 13. Okay. A house for the Father. A family for the Father. A family for the Father, of brothers and sisters, many brethren, Christ being the firstborn. A family, well, saints, the church is a family, is not just a theoretical thing. When God's people gather together under the headship of Christ, they fall in love with one another. They take care of one another. And not only that, but that spills out into the world. But it starts with the church. They are a community that embodies what the kingdom of God looks like. They take care of one another. They're a family, the family of God, and they're kin to deity. They know that they belong to God and that they're related to Him. So God the Father wants a family, wants kids. And that can be fleshed out in the church. Ecclesia. A bride for the Son. It's the third thing, a bride for the Son. In organic church life, we don't just meet to get the job done and try to win the world. 
In fact, that's not really primary on our radar screen. Our primary goal is something for God, and that is an outflow of that. Bride loves the Lord Jesus, falls in love with Him. We spend a lot of time loving Him and learning how to love Him. And there is something in the Lord's heart that desires to be loved, communed with. A group of believers doing that is beautiful as a bride. And then finally, a body for the Son. The Son wants a body. Why? So He can express Himself. Uh, what does your body do for you? You're expressed through it. What is a body of Christ? It's a good metaphor. And then all the members come together and sit passively and listen to preaching every week, every year. No, it's a body functioning. And uh, to get some help on how to do that and then do it, to be His body, to express Him. So these are things that God is looking for and has been from eternity past. And in the church we have a foretaste of that. Now, let's look at verse 29. For those He foreknew... He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. Now here, uh, Paul gives five affirmations. He foreknew you. Brothers and sisters, before you were born, God knew who you were. Now, I don't understand that except that God is outside of space and time. He's the first and the last. He's the last and the first. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He saw you at the end. He saw you at the beginning. I take comfort in the fact that the Lord knew me before I was born. <laughs> that to me is, is beautiful. But not only did He do that, He predestined you. And that means He marked you out in Christ before time. He chose you before you were born. He not only foreknew you, He chose you. And this is clear in the New Testament, Ephesians 1, verse 4. He destined you to have the imprint of His Son on your life. And then He called you in space-time. At some point, He called you. You heard the call through an individual. Maybe through a preacher on the radio. Maybe someone on TV. Maybe a friend. You heard the call of God through the Gospel. And you responded. And then He justified you. That is, He made you righteous. He acquitted you. He acquitted you. If you're acquitted, if you're justified, that means you can't be condemned. If a price has been already paid, you don't have to pay it. You can't pay it. It's done. But then, this is the mind-boggler, an incredible statement. He glorified you. From the viewpoint of God, you are already glorified. Remember, He foreknew you before you were born while well, He saw you at the end <laughs> in that great throng of resurrected believers with a glorified body. It's already happened. Now that is security, saints. It's already happened in the mind of God. And now we go to verse 31. What shall we say to these things? And here Paul stands on the highest mountain and reminds the saints in Rome of all that he has said. He calls forth the angels to bear witness. He declares before heaven and earth the very thing he wants the Christians in Rome to hear, and I will say this, the brothers and sisters here as well. For these words live. What shall we say to these things? What things? The things that he has unfolded in Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. All the things that he has declared so far. Now we haven't looked at all those chapters yet. Or we haven't looked at them up to this point except for chapter 8. But I'm going to go through these things. What things is he talking about? These are the things in Romans 1 to 8. 
He foreknew you before you were born. He elected you and chose you from the foundation of the world. He called you in time. He justified you on the basis of your fine merit and good works. No. He justified you on the basis of grace alone and what His Son did. He cleansed you by His blood and forgave you of all your sins. He put His Spirit in you. He put His life in you. He came inside of you. He adopted you. Not only did He take adoption papers out on you, but He put His own DNA in you and made you a son and daughter of God by life. That's better than our understanding of adoption. He promised to raise you from the dead and give you a new body like in the Christ. He's glorified you. He's glorified you already. It just hasn't caught up to you yet. He's made you joint heirs with His Son. He's freed you from the law. He's freed you from the dominion of sin. He's freed you from the old creation. He's freed you from the world. He's freed you from the power of Satan. And He's promised to conform you to the image of His Son. In light of all these things, this is what He's saying, what shall we say to these things? What shall we say to this glorious gospel that we have received? All that God has done, which is mind-boggling. What shall we say to these things? And now he's going to unravel the invincible purpose of God and bring it all to a high fever pitch. Verse 31, he asks five questions, and I love this. And saints, if you ever get down on yourself, or somebody blames you for something, or condemns you, and you're really feeling like, man, God can't be happy with me. God must love me a little less. Then I want you to go back to this and remember it. Because it will help you. If you're feeling that way now, inside, I'm not really sure if God loves me. I want you to hear this. Paul asks five questions. Question number one. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, brothers and sisters, <laughs> I have news. God is for you. Saints in Toledo, God is for you. He's in your corner. He's pulling for you. Who can be against you if God is for you? The answer is nobody that matters. I mean, there are people that are not for Frank Viola. Okay? After I wrote that red book, some people were not for me. But you know what? I have to remember that God's for me. Not because of anything I've done, but because He knew me and chose me and all of what he's done for me God's for me he's pulling for me he's pulling for you he's in your corner he's for you who can be against you nobody that matters question 2 verse 32 he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all how will he not also with him freely give us all things <laughs> He gave you the supreme gift of all, His own Son. How then will He hold anything back that you need or that is good for you? If He gave you the greatest gift of all, how can He hold anything back? Do you understand that? And the answer is nothing. The answer is no. He won't hold anything from you that you need to fulfill His purpose. That's security. You know, insecurity runs in the bloodstream of the universe. It's in all of us human beings. And Paul is excoriating, going to the root of insecurity. 
and he's obliterating it. That's what he's doing here. He's asking these questions. So, the question two, he did not spare his own son. Never doubt that God will not give you what you need. Now, you may not know what you need, or you may think you need something that you don't need, but God will not hold back. Question three, verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who will bring a charge against you? Who will lay a charge at your feet? And my answer to that is nobody that matters. For God has already justified you. Verse 34, question 4. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus has died and paid the price for it. Not only that, He's raised Him from the dead. And Jesus is standing at the right hand of God doing what? Interceding for you. Do you remember when Stephen was stoned to death and he looked up into the heavens and he saw Jesus? What was Jesus doing? He was standing. Now he's always sitting at the right hand of God. He was standing. Why is he standing? He's standing. He's cheering for Stephen. And he's opening his arms and saying, I've come off my throne to receive you. That, that really happened. Read it in Acts. Standing in the heavens. Jesus Christ is interceding for you. He is interceding on behalf of His Father to His Father for you. And who can condemn you? Well, I'll tell you who can condemn you. Your children can condemn you. Your boss can condemn you and blame you. Your wife can condemn you and blame you and indict you. Your husband, your friends, the people who are your enemies. But who can condemn you? No one that matters. God will not condemn you because you're in Christ. This is the reality. And it's good news. Verse 35. This is the fifth question. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Now the chapter began with the fact that there's no condemnation in Christ. And here it ends. That there is no separation in Christ. Who will separate you from the love of Christ? Is there any candidate? Now remember what these Christians are going to face in seven years. And remember that you don't know what you're going to face tomorrow. And neither do I. And here Paul <laughs> pulls out all the stops. Will tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? That's pressure. That's stress. That's when the bottom falls out. That's anguish. That's trial. And the answer is no. Will distress, that's sickness, calamity, extreme affliction, pain, and the answer is no. Will persecution from the outside or the inside? Will famine, that's you don't have enough food to eat, you're in poverty. Will nakedness, you don't have enough clothes to wear. Or peril, you know what peril is? Fear, terror. Terrorism, that's peril. Any kind of threatening atmosphere where you're afraid is peril. Will it separate you from the love of Christ? The answer is no. Or how about the sword? And that's death. The answer is no. 
Now, brothers and sisters, listen to me. I don't know if you realize this, but there is a gospel that is alive and well today, and you can hear it on the radio and on television, and it is this, that your circumstances affect or indicate how God feels about you. I'm going to repeat that. Your circumstances affect and indicate how God feels about you. Have you not heard that gospel before? Well, brothers and sisters, it is not true. Whatever circumstance we go through has no bearing on how He feels about us, on His love for us. It cannot separate us from His love. Verse 36, He's reminding them that the Christian is called to the same destiny as their Lord, and that is the cross. For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. He's reminding them of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. The servant is not greater than the Master. And look at verse 37. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. And now Paul's pen begins to soar on the indestructible power of God's love for you. Verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death, that's yours or anyone else's, nor life, that's yours or anyone else's, nor angels, that's fallen or unfallen, that's God's messengers or demons, nor principalities, that's the president, the congress, the courts, the judges, no earthly power, nor things present, that's anything that happens right now, nor things to come, that's anything that happens in the future, nor powers, any power whatsoever, whether on earth or heaven or under the earth, nor height, nothing above you, nor depth, nothing below you, nor any other created thing. Now, I love that, saints. Nothing created. Saints, let me remind you something. You were created. Nothing created. Nothing that's fashioned by God or man will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Never, ever, ever make the mistake of measuring the love of God based on your circumstances. Never make the mistake of basing God's love for you on your circumstances. Nothing can separate you from God's love, His acceptance of you. Um, I've, ha- I've had bad days in my life. I've had days where I've done things that I regretted. You're not looking at a perfect, immortal human being. But, brothers and sisters, it's very easy to fall into this thinking. God's really not happy right now. I don't think he loves me as much as he did yesterday. No, I have to remember that that's not the basis of his love and acceptance to me. His basis of love and acceptance is rooted not in my work or effort or success or failure. It's rooted in the work of another. 
and that is the Lord Jesus who I am in. Now, this is the beginning of organic church life. This is the beginning of standing for God's eternal purpose. To have a people who are totally and utterly free. Brothers and sisters, take your stand there and start right there. In that totally secure position. But there's no condemnation for you. That's a high, high place to begin. And then from that point, begin to learn how to live by the Christ that lives in you. And take a stand for His eternal purpose. What is that? We're standing to be the Lord's. He wants a house, a body, a bride, and a family. And that's why we're here. There are 3,000 churches in the city. They're all taking care of other things. We're going to stand for one thing. God's eternal purpose. We want to stand for the headship of Jesus Christ. We want to give the Lord a place to lay His head. That's simple, but it's very high. It's a high place to stand. So, here is my assignment to you all, and then I'll spread this out. 